I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. I'm honored today to be speaking to an author and a world-renowned psychologist that completely changed my life. Daniel Goldman was a science journalist that reported on the brain and behavioral science for the New York Times for many, many years. His book in 1995, Emotional Intelligence, is one of those massively influential paradigm-shifting kinds of books. You know, it's the kind of book that you read and go like, why did I not think of that before? It's so glaringly obvious, so life-changing, and yet we rarely ever spoke about emotional intelligence before Daniel wrote about it. And that book sold millions of copies over the decades. He, of course, continued to provide us with amazing work in many other books. Focus is one of my favorites as well as Altered Traits. Daniel is also an advocate for meditation and has worked with the Dalai Lama to express his key teachings backed by empirical evidence. Daniel is the co-founder of the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning and is currently co-directing the Consortium for Research on Emotional Intelligence in organizations at the Rutgers University. He is a board member of the Mind and Life Institute. He has been honored by the Washburn Award for Science Journalism, a Life Career Award from the American Psychological Association, and he was made a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in recognition of his communicating science to the general public. Daniel is definitely someone that has a very wide variety of backgrounds, so I will find it difficult to cover everything that I want to talk to him about today, but I'm looking forward to having a conversation with one of my heroes. So fantastic to have you. Thank you so much for joining me. It's my great pleasure, Mo. I'm, I'm really happy to be here with you. I don't know where to start because I'm a huge fan of three of your I read all of your work, of course. And starting from emotional intelligence, I love Focus. I love Focus. It's one of my favorite, favorite books. And, you know, I think a must read for everyone. And I love altered traits. And I want to cover everything because I'm very, sure, very sure. happy to talk to you today. <laughs> so, so I want to jump in all of them. But actually, one of the things I've never managed to find is how you ended up being Daniel Goldman. Because you're a psychologist, right? And you could have just followed the normal path that all psychologists follow, which I have to admit wouldn't have been as impactful a career, I think, as your actual impact. Yes. Well, it was one of those phenomena early in my career where, you know, one door closes and another door opens, as they say. <laughs> yeah. The one that closed was academe. My parents were college teachers, and I assumed that I would end up teaching psychology in some college. However, 
I was sidetracked because I spent two years living in India as a graduate student and postdoc. And those two years made me see that um, the spiritual paths that had meditative, contemplative traditions actually made profound changes. And many of those changes could be beneficial to just about anyone, whether you're a believer or non-believer, it didn't matter. So I came back to Harvard, which is where I was going to graduate school. And I said, hey, guess what? You know, there's a there there in meditation. And they said, that is like the stupidest idea. It's such a dead end. Yeah. Uh, they were totally dismissive. And I taught a course at Harvard called the Psychology of Consciousness. And like Lori Santos's course on happiness at Yale, it became the most popular course on campus. They had to move it to Memorial Hall, the biggest venue. And because it was psychology of consciousness, the professors in the department thought this was nearly scandalous. <laughs> and there was no way I was going to get another teaching job after graduating from Harvard. <laughs> At the same time, I was approached by a guy named George Harris who was the editor of a magazine at the time called Psychology Today. Then it was a very big magazine back in the day when there were big magazines. And they needed a psychologist for their staff, and he offered me the job. And I thought, well, you know, the alternative was not looking good. So that's where I went into journalism, which is the, the question you asked originally. Then that ended up in my being a science journalist at the New York Times and reading a very obscure journal that had an article called Emotional Intelligence by a guy named Peter Salovey and his graduate student, John Mayer. At that time, Peter was an assistant professor at Yale. Now he's the president of Yale University. I suspect in part is because he's got a lot of emotional intelligence. At any rate, that gave me a frame for a book I'd been tinkering with, which is really about emotions in the brain and was an argument for teaching emotional social skills to kids in schools. But that helped me get into the emotional intelligence framework. And then in successive books, I made my own model going back to my psychology days based on what are called competence models. These are models that companies do to see what distinguishes their star performers from average. And I realized that many of the key competencies, the vast majority actually, were in the emotional and social domain. So, you know, you've been in that world. And you if you think about who are the bosses you loved and who are the bosses people hated, it all has to do with emotional intelligence. Totally. It has nothing to do with domain expertise. It's the kind of person they are. And that's what I wanted to make clear. So I, I wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review about this and it became their most requested reprint in the history of the review wow it just went platinum which was great in terms of receptivity to the idea economically not good they paid me a 100 bucks for the article <laughs> however i might have endowed a chair at the business school i don't know anyway that's how i got to be in the emotional intelligence domain it's really really interesting though that you know at the time when emotional intelligence came out, it was new. It was like, oh, you know, this is something that we really need to pay attention to. Now, now it's taken for granted that this is a big part of what makes a big difference, right? And I think that journey of embarking on something totally 
undiscussed, but so glaringly obvious. You know, it's like, how did we miss that? <laughs> you know, this is really crazy when you think about it. Yeah. Well, I think people knew it intuitively. They just hadn't found language for it. And I gave them that. Mm-mm. So that journey, you take us through the idea of saying, look, we've always measured IQ. I, when I talk publicly, and I'm, I'm a technologist, I'm a businessman, I'm an entrepreneur, I believe in the economics of the world. But I have to say that one of the things I believe we've done wrong is we've hyper-prioritized IQ. We basically made the currency of success of anyone in the workplace for a very long time, how smart you are, how able you are to solve problems. And accordingly, this is your value. If you can solve big problems, we'll give you big value and so on. And in a way that created a workplace that I think from one side is hyper-masculine because it depends on traits like linear thinking, like a bit of strength and a bit of competitiveness and so on. Yes. But at the same time, it created a place the testosterone-related, totally. yes. Uh, yeah. Right. And, but at the same time, it created a place that is not good for our world. And the idea of emotional intelligence, as you discussed, and I, maybe I also want to talk about social intelligence, your later book, the idea of those being good for us, good for humanity, good for our environment, good for our ability to connect, good for our children, Can you tell us a little more about that? I think we want people to really realize what is important here. First of all, let's speak to the IQ fallacy, which I call it. The idea that it's your IQ, it's your smarts that will get you wherever you want to go. That's very true during all the years you're in school. It becomes less and less true as you go up the career ladder. Correct. If you become a leader then you don't really need to have technical skills or so on because you're managing people that have those skills. You're telling them what to do. You're trying to motivate them. You're trying to inspire them. You want to listen to them. You want to communicate. You want to influence. You want to guide. All of that has to do with emotional intelligence. And in in my model, there are four parts. Self-awareness, knowing what you're feeling and why you're feeling it and how it impacts what you do. Using that to manage your emotions well, to keep the disruptive ones uh, under control and to keep moving toward your goals, to be resilient, to bounce back, to be adaptable, to see the positive, which keeps you going. Then empathy, tuning into what other people feel. If you don't have empathy, if you only have IQ, I would say you would be a terrible leader. Absolutely. You would be a boss. People do not like. And a terrible parent and a terrible friend and a terrible everything, if you ask. Well, and that's the thing. The brain does not distinguish among domains. This is how you relate to people. If you don't tune into other people or care, then you're the kind of person someone does not want to marry, for example, or stay (laughs) married to. You're the kind of parent who sends your kids into therapy for years later. The kind of friend that um, people really don't want to have as a friend. In your personal life, it, it has the same costs. And then the last part is social intelligence, if you will. It's using your empathy and how you manage yourself to have effective relationships. And for leaders, this means being able to, to guide and persuade and inspire to manage conflict, to be a good team member. 
all of those get along harmonious with people. Turns out, this is interesting, research that was done, I think, at Cambridge University. If you look at the IQ of people on a team, the highest IQ team is not the most productive. The thing that makes a team productive is harmony. You know, Google did a study of their high-performing teams, and they found that it was psychological safety, which is another way of talking about the same thing. The feeling that I can trust these people, they know me, I know them. Yeah, I actually was at Google at the time when we did that. Yeah, and it's oh. very, very true. Yeah. Uh huh. And these are teams of engineers generally. So you may be interested in a new finding. I don't know if you've seen this yet. Engineers are asked to evaluate other engineers on effectiveness as engineers. And it turns out that the ratings of effectiveness by peers has zero correlation with IQ and a very high correlation with emotional intelligence. Totally. And Absolutely. you've been there, so maybe you've seen Yeah, this. I mean, how would you find out otherwise if, if that person is not relatable? How would you even find out if they're smart? And I think that was the whole idea. The whole idea is that your smarts, your ability to solve problems and write complex code is only portrayed if you can collaborate with all of the hundreds of others that are writing this code with you. Otherwise, you're a pain in the neck, to be honest. Yes, because writing code is a team sport now, isn't it? Totally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you can't be on the team, then you're holding everyone back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when I was reviewing my notes on emotional intelligence and, and the four principles, self-awareness, your ability to relate to others, empathy, and so on and so forth, there is not a time that I think this is more relevant than the current lockdown and pandemic that we're going through. And when I speak publicly again, I say this is the golden age of empathy. This is the biggest opportunity humanity has had in my lifetime to actually have emotional intelligence, to actually relate to the feelings of another, to relate to the challenges that others are going through, to be able to create that social intelligence, that social connection. How do you think it's benefiting us now? I mean, are we suffering the loneliness that most of the Western countries who are really locked down are suffering from, is that because of lack of emotional intelligence? Well, I think there's a correlation, but uh, let me first speak to something that worries me, which is kids. Kids learn emotional social skills from other kids to a very large extent. And the world's children are isolated totally for the most part. Yeah. They're not seeing other kids and they have basically a year so far out of their developmental course. And the emotional and social circuitry of the brain matures during childhood and adolescence into the mid-20s. And this is why I'm an advocate of social and emotional learning, helping kids in school get you know, lessons in all parts of emotional intelligence. This is now a big movement, but it's a little sporadic. Not every school has it by any means. But I feel that kids today are losing a year in their development. A very precious year. Well, yes, no matter what age the kid is. Yeah. Two, four, six, eight, you know, every year children learn. Now, younger kids, very young toddlers, learn mostly from their parents and their siblings. So actually, there may be more okay than kids who are in elementary and higher, because at that age, your friends become more important to you than your family. And that means that you tune into them, you want to talk to them, and you learn from them continually. 
So that's one part of it. And yes, I think that we're going to have to do a lot of makeup work for kids on their emotional intelligence. And I, I lump social intelligence into emotional intelligence. Now, then there's the rest of us, the adults, and the fact that we're isolated too. And I think you're absolutely right that we need empathy more than ever. There's a disconnect. For example, one of the strongest ways to show someone that you are totally present to them is eye contact. Zoom needs to be redesigned. WebEx needs to be resigned. Every system needs to be resigned because the hardware puts the camera above the picture. So yeah. in order for me to look you in the eye, I have to not look you in the picture, but look into the camera. Yeah. That's a big technological disconnect. The camera should be in the middle of the image of the person you're looking at in order to have that sense of presence. So we have to do the best. It doesn't mean that we can't be present for the other person, which is the essence of empathy, but rather that we need to put more energy into it. We need to be there for the other person more than in face-to-face -face interaction. And the brain is designed for face-to-face -face interaction. There's a decrement uh, as you go through the uh, technology ladder. Yeah. Uh, you know, Zoom and face-to-face -face and so on is better than the rest, but not as good as face-to-face. -face. Phone call actually is surprisingly good because there's a lot of emotional message carried by voice. As you get to print and no voice and no image, it's a disaster or a recipe for disaster because your emotional brain assumes that your nuanced contextualizing of the words you're sending the other person are going along with the message and they don't. Yeah. All the person gets is the text. And if you don't know that other person well, uh, it's easier and easier to misconstrue the text and maybe to get triggered by it and maybe needlessly. What would be your advice, especially for kids, because you actually really bring a point I've never thought of before, you know, a year of developmental time on emotional intelligence for kids who are not only isolated because of COVID, but more and more because of their parents are allowed to spend times looking at screens and really, really not connecting at all. True. It's a very big challenge. What would your tips be for that? Well, you know, I'm optimistic. Kids are very adept learners and they'll learn from anyone who is willing to teach them. And the learning of emotional social skill is largely through osmosis, through the interaction you have with uh, the postman. I don't know who, you know, someone, the UPS yeah. delivery guy or with uh, the janitor at school, if you're back in school. It doesn't matter who the person is, but what you're learning in every interaction is how to interact, how to be there, and is the other person there. And I hope and suspect that kids will be able to make up for lost time when they go back to a face-to-face -face world. That's my hope. And um, there is a developmental map in the field of child development and developmental psychology that basically says what kids need to learn emotionally and socially at which age they're in. And I guess that map could be used for remedial education too. I, I, this is a new thought for me. You see that map 
Illinois has started to mandate SEL, social emotional learning, in its schools, and it has that map, which was prepared by very good uh, developmental research, on its website. That's where I've seen it. There may be other places to see it, but it's just a thought. It really is mandatory. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it remains to be seen whether people will actually take up the challenge. I don't know. One tip, actually, that I was given in my very early Google training was that you can minimize the screen of the video conference and move it all the way up right under the camera. So truly, it doesn't really create eye contact. Actually, Zoom doesn't fully minimize the screen, especially when I'm recording. But when you minimize it to the point where it becomes a little square under the camera, it feels as if you have eye contact. And I really agree with you. That level of eye contact is massively, massively important. So emotional intelligence, those who are listening, if you have not read Emotional Intelligence by Daniel, what are you doing with your life? I mean, this is definitely a classic. Now, let's move to my favorite. I mean, definitely, I'm sorry to say it's my favorite, but it really is one of my favorite parts of your work is the idea of attention. You know, I call it in my third book coming next year, I call it deliberate attention. And in in many ways, I actually, so all of my work on happiness, I started to pinpoint it entirely to deliberate attention, you know, to almost saying... Yeah, you know, especially when when we get beyond unhappiness into depression and despair, if you want, it seems that the idea of hypofrontality, if you want, the inability of your prefrontal cortex to pay enough attention does not allow you to control your emotions in a way where you can actually see the reality of what you're going through. And so the topic of attention and the topic of awareness to me is a very, very big topic. And in focus... I love how you quote Herbert Simon. Oh, yes. (laughs) The idea is that information requires bandwidth, intelligence, uh, you know, thinking. Or I think he says um, information consumes attention. Yes, exactly. It consumes attention and accordingly, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. Yes. Correct. So this is really fundamental to our world today because we're living in a world where... It's actually almost the sign of our times not to pay attention. We're never really together. We're always looking at little screens. We're swiping through. Even you sometimes in your speeches mention that when you do research, I don't remember which talk, but you were talking about researching on something on Google Scholar. And the minute we turn to our devices, everyone gets distracted. You watch the news. I respond to emails. It's just so, so draining how difficult it's become to pay attention in this world. So tell us a bit about the premise of focus and why I believe this is very pivotal in today's world. Yes. Well, in focus, I talked about the leader's triple focus, which is self-awareness, which is empathizing, noticing other people, and then systems awareness. But it's interesting that you're looking at what I wrote about attention itself and how it's challenged today. You know, there was that study at Harvard where they gave people an app that at random times asked them, what are you doing now and what are you thinking about? And if those two things don't match, you're not paying attention. And it found that people are not paying attention more than half the time. And that if people are at work or in front of a video screen or commuting, they're paying almost no attention. They're distracted 90% of the time. 
the question is, can we take back voluntary control or what I think what you're calling deliberate attention? And this is one encouraging thing, actually, about meditation and mindfulness. I don't know if you are into those practices. Oh, absolutely. But they directly enhance our ability to pay attention. There was a study done at the University of California that I write about in Altered Traits. Oh, no, it was at Stanford. They found that if you're focusing on something really important today and your attention is very high, you're absorbed in it, and then you think get a little ping, oh, I've got a text and I should check my email. And then you, before you know it, you're on Twitter and Facebook and, and you finally get back to that thing that's so important and now your attention is much lower and it takes you a while to ramp up again. Unless you did 10 minutes of mindfulness that day. Mindfulness practice directly boosts attention. Then in that study, they found that the practice of mindfulness let people be almost as concentrated as they were originally and soon get back to full force. Now, there's another study in that book, Mo, that suggests very strongly that if you do a meditation like mindfulness of the breath, where you try to watch the in-breath and the out-breath, and then uh, when your mind wanders and you notice it wandered, you bring it back to your breath. That action of bringing it back to your breath is what actually builds concentration. I love that. It's like when you go to a gym and every time you, you lift a weight, every rep makes that muscle just a bit stronger. The neural circuitry for focus and concentration, deliberate attention, if you will, gets more connected and stronger every time you notice your mind wandered and you bring it back. That's the essence of concentration. Really, your ability to concentrate can be measured in a negative, which is how often you're distracted and what you do about it when you notice. Yeah, so there is no doubt that there are downsides to being distracted. I mean, I believe the Harvard study that was measuring the difference, the mind wandering idea was actually, I don't remember who, but uh, there was a study about the relationship between that and happiness. And that if your mind wandered, you were constantly unhappy, right? The article in Science Journal by these same people was called, a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. Correct. They found it yeah. correlated with depression. Yeah. Yeah, but there are parts, and I'm sort of playing the devil's advocate here. There are parts of mind wandering that are useful. Oh, yeah. If you want to be, sure. if you want to be creative, for example, you have to allow your mind to wander a little bit, right? Excessive attention might actually, or excessive focus, if you want, might actually lead to stress, right? If you, if you're one track focused on one task and obsessing about it day and night, and you know you have to finish that project, it could work against us. So let's separate dimensions here, because I think we're conflating some orthogonal dimensions. One is tension and anxiety. Focus should be relaxed. It shouldn't be tense. So if you're doing uh, focus in the right way, you wouldn't increase tension. You actually might increase relaxation. Uh, The other thing is that, yes, I completely agree The creative insight occurs, is most likely to occur when the mind is wandering. There's lots of research on that. However, how would you, I'm just asking you, Mo, how would you distinguish between fruitless mind wandering 
and creative mind one. One thing that occurs to me is rumination. People who are depressive keep looping depressogenic thoughts. I'm no good. I'm a failure. I can't do this. And this is why cognitive therapy is so powerful, by the way. Now I have to plug my wife. She wrote a book called Emotional Alchemy, which was the first to combine mindfulness with cognitive therapy. Now that's a very hot field. But in doing that, you use the power of the mind to observe itself, to see when you're obsessed with counterproductive thoughts, negative thoughts, thoughts that make you depressed, and then to counter those thoughts. So I would say that you need a little cognitive therapy to get out of that loop, the mental loop that leads to depression. I don't think focus itself is enough. I think you need to also pay attention to the nature of the thoughts. Again, I think it was a Stanford study that showed the relationship to hypofrontality or to the lack of deliberate attention and the tendency to find negative thoughts, which I think what you're saying is that you can counter that by training the muscle of attention through reps of mindfulness, reps of noticing a, a mind wandering and coming back. Yes, I think you're thinking of another Stanford psychologist, Susan Huxma. It's a hyphenated name. I can't remember. Anyway, she talks about the difference between constructive worry and rumination. And it's rumination that leads to depression or anxiety. And what she means by constructive anxiety is that you worry about something and come up with something you can do to change the situation better than you drop the thought. The Dalai Lama likes to quote an old Tibetan saying, if you're in a bad predicament and there's something you can do about it, why worry? And if you're in a bad predicament and you can't do anything about it, why worry? (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of like Alfred E. Newman, what me worry? At any rate, she says that there's constructive anxiety where you think of something to do. And then there's destructive anxiety or rumination where you continually loop through the same worry over and over, like two in the morning, and you never come up with a constructive step to take. You just catastrophize. And that's what leads you down the slope to anxiety or depression. Mm -hmm. I see that. Do you feel that the same tools we have to pay attention, mindful attention to things outside us are the same tools that we can use to pay basically inner focus? The idea to be able to be aware of what's happening, what's going on inside me, how I need to deal with it, what I need to control, what I need to pause on, and so on. I suspect they're the same. I don't think anybody knows for sure. But I think that each is a way to cultivate more, a better ability to focus. What do you think? I have to say internal focus and inner focus is different for me. I mean, I find it quite easy to focus externally in a mindful way. So I, for example, one of my favorite uh, meditations is to focus on sounds around me. The sound of the fan of the computer, the sound of the air conditioner plugs my attention where it needs to be. I actually think that some of the acts of observing your breathing are still, you know, they're within your body, but they're not within your thoughts and emotions. And, And the exercise of actually being aware of what you're aware of the exercise of being aware of your emotional state. This is, to me, the Jedi master level, if you want, of mindfulness. It's a different level of skill, if you want. 
I would agree with you, but I think it's important to distinguish between uh, involuntary external attention and voluntary external. You're totally. talking about deliberate yeah. attention because deliberate. most of our lives we are stimulus bound, as it's called in psychology. You know, it's that app on our phone that's pulling our attention. It's the movie we're watching or the people around us. And it's interesting that the most powerful distractors are not external distractors like that. They're emotions we feel, Absolutely. internal. Yeah. 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 But it's kind of a lazy focus to just let what's around you be the guide to your attention or pull your attention. Uh, deliberate attention uh, takes a little bit of willpower, frankly. Yeah. I find the interesting side of inner focus is it leads me to reflection, which is a cycle beyond attention. It's really interesting. So maybe at this stage of my life, inner focus, being aware of an emotion, for example, in a meditation exercise or you know, in a moment of silence, would drive me to reflect on the origins of that emotion, on the origins of my conditioning, on the origins of where did that come from? Why did I see it this way? Is there a different way to see it? And I found that to be almost a separate exercise from mindfulness. I spoke to Matthew Ricard, which I know you, you like very much, on slow-mo, and, and we were talking about the idea of being able to just stay with that state of complete presence without the reflection. And then we spoke about what he called analytical meditation, I think, or I don't remember the exact term, but the idea of actually reflecting on some of what you're meditating on. And it's very powerful when you think about it to be able to get to that point. Yeah, in his tradition, it's called analytic meditation. Yeah, yeah. And it's a different mental act, if you think about it. When you're simply focused in meditation, you're not thinking about, you're being with. When you reflect, you're thinking about. And both are useful, but useful in different ways. And I think Matthew would agree with that. I'm a great admirer of Matthew Ricard. We all are. We all are. <laughs> he is an amazing, amazing being. I love the story that you told when he worked with Richard Davidson. And at the beginning that they were worried that maybe there will be something discovered in their practice that actually doesn't encourage people to meditate. You know, it's like, is it, is it really going to work? And then yes. you put Matthew Ricard in an MRI machine and man, look at that brain. You know, this brain <laughs> completely <laughs> shifted to the left hippocampus. Basically. So it's yeah. important to um, clarify that Matthew was the beginning of studies of yogis. These are Olympic level meditators. Yeah. And their brain function is different, it turns out. But before Matthew did that, People in that category were reluctant to go to uh, be, for example, get a brain scan while they meditated because they didn't know what the apparatus was, what it measured, or if it would discourage people. They had no idea. And Matthew was key in assuring or reassuring people who were very advanced yogis, essentially, that this was okay. Yeah. So that takes us into altered traits because I think that's probably what I wanted to leave our listeners with, the idea of it's not a joke that meditation actually works, that this idea of practicing, doing the reps actually alters 
the traits of our brains in ways that are very effective. If you think of the mind and the brain as an internal gym, we go to the gym and we work out and we get cardiovascularly fit and we work our muscles and bulk them up. It's exactly the same with the brain. It's systematic training. And the more you train, the stronger the circuitry that you train becomes. This is called neuroplasticity. It's just a fact of how the brain operates. There's a saying, neurons that fire together, wire together. And you're using that principle systematically to strengthen the wiring. And also, there's this fact that we get 10,000 new brain cells every day of our lives till we die. I didn't know that. Uh, and they go to where they're needed. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just the same as thinking about physical fitness, but it's inner fitness. So I think of it as an internal gym. What are the most, the clearest altered traits for meditators? So when, when you call them the professional athletes, the yogis that really do, if I recall the number 60,000 hours in a lifetime of meditation. That was so, the high end. Yeah. That was the high end. Yeah. Low end was 12,000. But if you do a traditional Tibetan retreat, which is three years, three months, and three days of only meditation, you only get credit for 10,000 hours. So think about it. That's a lot of hours. <laughs> it is what Malcolm Gladwell would refer to as a life-changing skill set, basically 10,000 hours, right? Uh, yeah. Well, I have to just say, by the way, Malcolm got the research wrong. It's a gradient. 10,000 is not a magic number oh, yeah, yeah, at all. That absolutely. was taken from one study of uh, violinists or something in an orchestra. Yeah. First violinist versus second violinist. Actually, the guy who did the research, his name is Erickson. He's at Florida. He's upset with Malcolm. <laughs> I like Malcolm a lot. But he says that Malcolm really distorted his findings. His research. For example, if you want to be a memory champion, it takes about three or 400 hours uh -huh. oh, is that to true? master being able to memorize long numbers of digits, for example. It depends on the skill. It's really interesting that you say that because I, of course, I debate everything in my analytical brain. And I tend to find that skills, especially mindfulness or personal development skills that I work on, I feel a significant difference at 2,000 hours, which is a lot of hours. But, you know, if I'm sure. working on something, yeah. uh, I feel a significant difference at 2,000 hours. And, you know, it's much less than 10,000, even though it's not a small number. So Erickson found something very interesting. He found that people who learned a new skill, like uh, golfing, say, will work and practice and learn and improve a certain number of hours. I can't remember the number. And then plateau. Yeah. They say, well, that's enough. And then that's as good as they get. People like Tiger Woods, poor guy, he's just in a bad accident. But people like Tiger Woods keep learning and practicing all yes. their professional career. They have coaches. People who are singers, professional singers, have voice coaches. People who are athletes have coaches all their lives while they're in the game. So there is a continual learning. So when we looked at meditation, there were three tranches, if you will. There were beginners up to 100 hours of practice. There were intermediate, which was 1,000 to 10,000. And then there were the yogis, the Olympic level, 12,000 and up. And we found, for one thing, there's no consistency in the studies from one group to another. So you can't really compare, except in broad strokes. With beginners, we found that there are a lot of 
benefits right from the start. Your attention gets better. You get more calm. And um, if you do a loving kindness kind of practice, are you familiar with that? Yeah, absolutely. then you become kinder, actually. And this mm-hmm. you can see this showing up from the beginning in the intermediate meditators. People have been doing it maybe a daily practice in a retreat or a couple of years. You find changes in genetics when they meditate. Their inflammatory genes become inhibited during the meditation. You find uh, that they are triggered for what I, I would call an emotional hijack. Less often, if they are triggered, it's less strong and the recovery is quicker. Then there's the yogis, and they're like a whole different ballgame. But these are people who are professionals. They live in a culture where you can be supported just to meditate. That's what a yogi is. He's a professional meditator, he or she. Which actually leads me to an experiment I tried to run last year, something that I used to call half-monk which unfortunately, <laughs> as of the beginning of this year, I couldn't put in the attention, the time to do it. But I wanted, I wanted half of my life, exactly 50%. I'm an engineer, so I measure everything. I wanted <laughs> 50% of every minute of my day, other than sleeping, to be dedicated to engaging in the modern world and the other 50 dedicated to practice. And when you talk about the idea of professional meditators, the yogis, the athletes, if you want, most of us don't have the luxury to do this. So, you know, what would your advice be? It's never going to be available for someone who has to do a job in the morning and, you know, raise a couple of kids and so on. Yeah. My advice is do the best you can. The very best kind of meditation is the one you will do. So find, it doesn't matter what kind, just prioritize it. Make time in your day. Maybe it's uh, after the kids go to sleep. Maybe it's in the morning before you go to work. If you have a nine to five, I don't know if anybody still has a nine to five job, but if you have a job that requires your presence, if you don't, like I'm, I don't have a day job. So I spend, and my wife does the same, all morning practicing till lunch. Wow. Then I schedule, you know, what I have to do after lunch. So that's another model. And, uh, Maybe for people who are engaged but have flex time, that's a viable model. In other words, take a chunk of the day and protect it for practice. And you might be able to do that too. I don't know. Yeah. I want to take us back to where we started the conversation in India. Sure. You're in psychology. You go to India. You find that culture that basically says there is more to life than just rushing and there is a way to actually train the mind. And then you followed that. You followed that into... Buddhism and into all different practices of, uh, of meditation. Do you believe that our Western world could benefit from a little less material success and growth and a little more personal development and growth? That's a rhetorical question, right? It is right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Because obviously <laughs> the answer is yes. And I wouldn't say it's just the West. I'd say it's modern society. Modern society is a better choice of words. Yes, I think it's global. And I think that we've been sold a bill of goods, that happiness is in material acquisition. And it creates what's called the hedonic treadmill, technically, where in search of an elusive pleasure, we keep working and working and working. And um, there are unhappy people who are CEOs, and there are unhappy people who are day laborers. Happiness is a different dimension 
than goods. And I think that one of the great insights of spiritual traditions, I wouldn't say Buddhism particularly, all spiritual traditions, is that there is another way of being which does not privilege material goods and acquiring more and more, but rather privileges your inner state and your wakefulness and your generosity, your kindness, qualities that reflect that state. So I think this is actually, it's a perennial phenomenon. I don't know if it's gotten any worse today than it was 2,000 years ago. I think Jesus talked about it's difficult for a wealthy person to go through an eye of need. I don't remember the exact saying, but he was commenting on the same thing thousands of years ago. Uh, So I think that it is a problem probably endemic or stemming from the nature of the human brain and in evolution. We needed to learn to store up nuts and things we could eat when we could get them because there would be a time when we couldn't. And that was rewarded because the people who did that had kids who survived to do the same thing and on and on and on. And that's been translated now into material wealth. And it's a, a sad fact of our lives. It really is. It is as sad, I would probably say, as the harm we bring to the planet, the harm we bring to ourselves, the harm we bring to others. So I think that the harm we bring to the planet is a epiphenomenon, a side effect of this other fallacy. Because I don't know if it's true so much any longer, but for hundreds of years, the damage done to the planet was done because someone was making money from it. You think about it, you know, a cattle rancher in the Amazon who wants to make more money clears trees to get more grazing land and on and on. But we were blind to that. In fact, accountants help companies be blind to it by creating a category called externalities. Externalities are the environmental impacts of what you do that you don't have to account for. Someone else will take care of them. And it's that way of thinking that helps us have a blind spot. And really all of us, the way in which things we use and buy create what's happening to the planet. It's a sad fact. It really is. It really is. I'd probably go back and say the reason why at the beginning of our conversation, I said emotional intelligence focus and altered traits is I have again, preparing for our conversation and and reviewing my notes on those wonderful works, I think these put together would lead us to a very different way of living. You know, it's that idea of having emotional intelligence and focus inside and out, the ability to understand where you are, the ability to actually change your approach to life in a way that allows you to be mindful, a little more mindful. I think that would really change our world. And and I think in your work, you've done those justice. You've really, really brought them to the surface in a way that was very, very interesting and informative and rich. And for that, I'm very grateful. Oh, thank you. That's kind of you, Mo. So Daniel, before I close, I know that you started a podcast. I did. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this? Yeah. Thanks for asking. It's called uh, First Person Plural. 
Uh, I'm doing it with the group that includes my son, Hanuman, oh, nice. and it's quite a delight. We're co-hosts. It's really emotional intelligence and beyond. It goes into areas that I'm currently interested in. And as you know, Mo, it's much quicker turnaround time to have a good, interesting idea and share it on a podcast I agree. than it is in a book. <laughs> totally agree. Does that mean you're not writing new books for us? I'm also doing that, but it's so much slower. Uh, but the podcast, uh, you know, like, for example, we mentioned social emotional learning. So I, I've done a podcast on that. It'll air in one of the first few. And also on happiness. I talked to Lori Santos, who did that wonderful course at Yale. Oh, fantastic. Uh, about what, what really brings us happiness. I talked to another fellow I wrote Altered Traits with, Richard Davidson who has been doing lots of work on well-being, which is kind of happiness for no reason. <laughs> Usually we depend on things in our lives to make us happy, but can we become intrinsically happy? It's really interesting. So anyway, I go into many different areas on the podcast that are intriguing to me and I think will be to listeners also. First person plural. Is first the first of plural. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the world of podcasting. I will tell you openly, it's one of my biggest joys. Wonderful. The ability to get to meet people like yourself and, you know, discuss ideas promptly, as you rightly said. I think that's really, really fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you for noting that I'm joining your ranks and I see why it's so pleasurable. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm very, very grateful for your time today. I think it's, as always, quite eye-opening and enlightening, and it's wonderful that you spend the time. Thank you. It's been really fun talking to you. Thank you, Mo. Same here. Thank you so much. So there you have it. I hope you can see from the wealth of information that Daniel provides, the link between that idea of emotional intelligence, focus, and how that mindful approach to life will alter the traits of our brains. I wish we had more time to discuss more, but perhaps give Daniel's work a bit of your time and uh, visit his new podcast. Tell people about what you heard today, share about it on social media, and help me spread the word. If you haven't done so already, do me a favor and please rate this podcast here in Slow Mo. Five stars, it really helps me spread the message to more people. Find me on social media uh, and let's keep talking. I'm very, very grateful for all of you that constantly send me messages about recommended guests and opinions and points of views and tips of what I can do better. Thank you so much for your contribution. Thank you so much for your kind words. And uh, yeah, what can I say? Join me as often as you can. Try not to miss any episodes. I know I put so many of them out there, but I find that so often... I get a message from someone that says that a specific episode with a specific guest has changed their life. So remember, it doesn't matter how busy you are. There is always, always time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I'll see you next time.